hearing the pounding of my children's feet above my head makes me think of the Mines of Moria from The Fellowship of the Ring, where you hear the... <laughs> as he's reading the book, drums, drums in the deep. And then you hear them... And the screeches and the howls coming, echoing through the mines. I can still remember just being a little pre-teenager watching that in the theaters and just thinking, buckle up. It's about to get real. I tell you what, if we ever did, I don't know, it's some sort of segment rank geeks on the best movie segments of all time. Not necessarily, I, I guess, would you count the whole, the whole time in Mariah as, as Moria as one scene? I think it's one of the best scenes of all time. I, mean, I would give that a scene. Yeah. It was amazing. The whole stretch from the time that he goes in and he lights up the huge, huge cavernous halls. You have this beautiful moment and then the darkness of the tomb and then the Balrog, the greatest, one of the greatest movie monsters ever. I, the whole thing is just oh, pitch perfect, pitch perfect. Maybe maybe we could call it a sequence because yeah. it does technically have a couple of scenes in there. You know, you have the Gandalf, yeah. especially in the extended edition. You have the Gandalf and Frodo uh, scene in there where they see Gollum kind of following them and they ta- have that conversation and, you know, stuff like that happens. So maybe you'd call it a sequence, but it is pretty great. Oh, it's so great. That in the beginning scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Two of the best classics classics speaking of classics <laughs> is the snyder does zach snyder's justice league destined to become one we're talking about zach snyder's justice league on this episode of pop culture with fanboy know it all and the top five movies that definitely need to be recut <laughs> What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. Yes. And inside the the episode where we just question everybody else's intelligence. And <laughs> Isn't that what we do every episode? I mean, possibly. we are critical on this show. At least between each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. If not about everybody else, too. Yeah, speaking of which, I think it's time to be critical of each other in our 2021 fantasy movie award season draft. We, we made this draft how many months ago? We drafted back end of November, early December. Yeah. It's a long it time. The ago. draft combine era. Yeah. <laughs> I had even forgotten sort of the movies that I had picked. I thought for sure I had Minari on my team. No, you have it on your team. I do. Since we are coming close to the big event, the climactic Super Bowl of, of our particular fantasy film series, um, the Oscars, I thought it was about time to to actually update us and everybody else who's interested on, on how we're doing. And Jake made me do this segment in part because I am losing. Mm. I am losing. But I am not losing by much. The scores right now, are 
Jake has 100 points based on his five movies that he selected. They would be Mank, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Minari, One Night in Miami, and The Five Bloods. 100 points he has garnered over the entire award season categories, and that's pretty good. I am trailing with 83 points with my movies, Nomadland, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Father, The Personal History of David Copperfield, which has gotten me a total of one point, and Tenet. Now, I do have to say, Jake, that this is as close a film competition as we have had in the three years that we have done it. This is true. You know, I ran away with the first year. You cheated and ran away with the second year. This time, it's actually pretty competitive because... Um, every Oscar that one of our teams wins will count for six points. So you can make up a lot of ground in a hurry. So if Nomadland sweeps a lot of awards, which I think it will, I could actually be the come from behind victor. Yeah, there's the potential that with just by beating me by three wins in the Academy Awards, you could come from behind and squeak out that one point victory as it stands. I'm I'm betting on it. I am really betting on it. And I look forward to getting some sort of congratulatory gift from you. That's right. I think last year it was, you know, the the winner got to compose a tweet for the loser to have to tweet from <laughs> from their account. That's right. We yeah. could we could adjust the stakes this year if if you'd like something Meteor. I'm open to that with you being the loser currently, the the being behind currently. Well, the the tweet was fun. It went back from what I recall. It had Robin talking about how much he enjoyed adjusting books in Skyrim. Is that right? Along those lines. Yeah, yeah that was. I think it was actually maybe a tweet from your books. <laughs> I think your books in Skyrim were tweeting about you. <laughs> That might be. That might be. It was so knowing me. That sounds like I like to shift perspective like that. <laughs> so that was pretty good. The the thing that that is sort of driving me right now, frankly, is my stomach. And knowing that I'm going to win. See, my wife is kind of on this health kick, okay. and she's uh, she's cutting down on a lot of sodium, which means I have not had a bacon cheeseburger in a long, long time, and I'm feeling. I'm feeling an urge for a bacon cheeseburger, especially one paid for by somebody else. All right. So loser buys lunch. Let's do it. It's a deal. All righty. Loser we buys have, lunch. We, we have to tweet the lunch itself. Just a picture so of it. People know, right? Okay. Picture of us getting lunch together and the loser holding the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Perfect. There you have it. The Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All Annual Fantasy Movie Award Season League update. Yes. The Flidmidifler. <laughs> we really need to come up with a catchier name for that. That's really not a very good name. It's not, but at this point I feel like it has some kitsch appeal to it. And so now I'm reticent to change it just because of that. Oh my goodness. Change is good. Change can be good. Change can be good, and that is a fantastic segue because we are talking about a movie that has been changed and re-released, and that is the Zack Snyder – well, it's called. It's titled Zack Snyder's Justice League. 
just about three and a half years after the release of Justice League, where we had sort of a unceremonious exit from Zack Snyder during the Justice League process. It was a, a, a process fraught with peril in many ways. There's lots of reports that people weren't happy with the cut that he was coming up with to begin with. And then there was family tragedy for Snyder that ultimately led to him leaving and Joss Whedon coming in and picking up the pieces and making ultimately a shorter film that received a lot of criticism, but was also kind of polarizing. Some people liked it. They liked that it was tonally different from Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Others were decidedly unhappy and proceeded to make a big stink about releasing the Snyder's cut. And here we are. Yeah. Three and a half years later. (laughs) Honestly, I think that the story behind justice league is, is more interesting than the movie justice league itself, Mm. because it really is a very complicated story. And one of the things that, that Zack Snyder's justice league, which is four hours long was released in its entirety on HBO Max recently, took an estimated $70 million to film above the $300 million that they spent on the original. It really gives an interesting look at how two different filmmakers use, I can't even say it's necessarily the exact same story because it's not really, but, but the vision that they had for the Justice League, it's, it really is pretty stark. And it's a fascinating study in just movie making. Whether it's an actually good movie, I guess that's something we're going to talk about. That's right. And animated by this recut of the Justice League, we thought, you know what, what better thing to do than wrap that with a rank geeks of the top five films that we believe should be recut because we know recutting is a controversial thing in the movie world. Should you stick with the original vision? Was the original vision compromised? Then we need to get back to the original vision was the original vision crap. And, you know, of course we saw a lot of this around the star Wars seven, eight and nine, right? Particularly eight and nine. Goodness. With a lot of anger and confrontation between the fanboys and the know-it-alls over <laughs> whether or not those films needed to be recut and whose vision was right, who was being too slavish to the nostalgia of the Star Wars universe and who or who was being too out there with it. All of the history that came before potentially is what right. Rick said. So we thought, you know, let's create some more controversy and come up with our ranked list of other films that should be completely retconned in <laughs> their history uh, by a new cut, the way Zack Snyder's Justice League has. So, and of course, the, we will wrap up the show the way we always love to wrap up this show. And that's what the most least important thing. But now it's time for Zack Snyder's Justice League. Dropping into HBMO, HBMO, (laughs) (laughs) home body malfunction odor. (laughs) That is a confusing acronym. Dropping into HBMO Max Cues, he said as his 
five-year-old opened his door and started chucking pillows in. <laughs> Hello, Maverick. <laughs> Is Zack Snyder's Justice League. Paul, you already previewed that it cost Warner Brothers another $70 million to make this recut. And we're here to talk about our thoughts on that and whether or not that $70 million seems worth it. It seems like an outrageous amount of money, quite frankly. And and to be honest with you, in some ways, I'm surprised it was that cheap. I mean, a lot of the uh, the special effects that they did, and obviously a lot of the footage that they use here is footage that was in Zack Snyder's original cut, right? The, the darker... You mean the Josh Whedon cut? Ex- yeah, before the Josh, Josh Whedon. Oh, the original... Right, right, right. This was right. all filmed. Yeah, exactly. Most so... Them, yeah. so Zack Snyder spent $200 million filming this dark, broody version of Justice League. And then, as you say, some people said that the cut was unwatchable, unreleasable. Um, his his daughter died in the middle of it in, in, as, as he was going into post-production and he left. And Joss Whedon came back and, and because Warner Brothers requested it, brought the whole thing down to two hours filmed a whole bunch more scenes, CGI'd um, Superman's mustache out. Henry Cavill famously grew a mustache for his work in Mission Impossible 2. They had to zip that out just just through some computer, some not very good computer work. Um, Released it to the public, and it was a much different film than what Zack Snyder wanted it to be. Um, Zack was later, even though he got directed directing credit for the original Justice League, he says that only like 15 to 20% of the movie that he filmed actually made it in. I think they ended up just giving him, uh, oh, you're right. He does. I read somewhere that they just gave him screenplay credit, but there are places where they also give him directing credit. Yeah. Yeah. IMDB has him with directing credit. Um, although I'm not sure that might've actually changed with the, this new director's cut. Um, but anyway, so for this new version, Zach actually came in and I think one of the things that he did and did really well is retrofitted Steppenwolf, who looked a little bit goofy in the original Justice League, gave him this spiky, sparkly CGI armor that made him look much, much cooler. Um, and you would think that that just that alone could have been $70 million, given the way it was shimmering all over the place. So Yeah. Well, in the complex CG moving parts, it is an area where when you hear that they had to spend $70 million to do this cut when most of the footage was already filmed, at first you just, wait, you already paid the actors, you already did all the scenes, all the all the stuff you had to do. But when you start to learn about what it takes to do the computer-generated effects – in these types of films, I mean, you are paying some of these lower level, quote unquote, animators to go frame by frame on these special effects. I and mean, it sound when you read about it, it sounds like one of the worst jobs in the world to, <laughs> to go frame by frame, you know, like when they're animating these tiny little cracks and flexing things in that armor on Steppenwolf, you just think that was a nightmare for a couple, you know, for a couple of dozen young aspiring computer generated artists and going frame by frame. Yeah. 
making sure it all looked the way they wanted it to look. Then you're like, then you think, okay, 70 million still crazy, but they had to pay an army of people to do that. Right. Exactly. And, and you kind of think about CGI technology. One of the, one of the things about CGI is that it seems like it has a half-life of about six months. You know, it, it doesn't take long for it to look aged. And so when you think about incorporating all the original CGI that was used in, in the 2017 version of Justice League, I wonder how much it would have held up. This CGI, one of the things this film did right, Zack Snyder's Justice League did right, I think, was the CGI. Um, Jake, both you and I commented on Wonder Woman 1984, how the CGI just didn't work that well. Um, it felt a little bit goofy in places. I didn't have a moment like that in Justice League, even though it ran for four hours. I don't remember thinking at any one point, oh, that doesn't look quite right. Did you? Yeah, I I still did, but I think in ways that were more personal than, hey, this is truly bad. I didn't think Cyborg, I, I didn't think that those effects looked very good. Yeah, uh, I thought he felt pretty foreign, and I get that it's somebody, you know, in a robot body. I just don't think they incorporated the effect very well for me personally, for for Cyborg, and even for his talking, I didn't think was great. It, it felt didn't feel organic to the film. I get that he's going to feel like a robot, but uh, in addition to that, this was a problem I had with Aquaman the movie was the water underwater effects I just didn't think were very good. And that was a huge problem for the whole Aquaman movie and is also still a problem here. But those were all present in the original cut as well. And it's probably more of a just limitations and stylistic thing than it is anything else. You know? I, yeah. Aquaman, there's just sort of something funky about them trying to do dialogue down underwater. And that's just, it just always feels weird to me. You know, well, the way their hair looks and the way they move, it just doesn't it, it you you get what they're trying to do, but it's not quite there. It sort of still lands in that uncanny, not even truly in the uncanny valley, but kind of in that neighborhood where you're just like, Ugh, nah, I it just feels super fake. Yeah. And I got to say, Daniel Defoe, the, who who played who has a part in Aquaman. William Defoe. William Defoe, excuse me. Um he looks really old with long hair. Really, really old. So, yeah. yeah. And so on the one hand, that makes me a little bit more nervous about the upcoming Avatar film, since I know at least one of them is supposed to take place more underwater. I wonder if they're going to be able to solve for some of the problems that Aquaman had trying to be a heavy underwater film or whether it will be plagued by some of the same issues. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see. So I guess we should do just a quick plot rundown. Um, the, yeah, maybe say that we're going to talk about the some of the differences. Yeah. Between, so if you really care about that being spoiled for you, then yeah, yeah. this isn't the place for you. But we're here to review the fact that this is a recut of a film that's been out for a while. We're going to talk about the differences, what was added. Yeah. What was changed? So this is your spoiler alert in case we you weren't clear on that before. Yeah, yeah. And and if you haven't seen the original Justice League, there's a huge spoiler that happens it, both in both versions, right? So right. Um, likely it has been spoiled for you several years ago. But if not, be warned. Um, 
Justice League opens with Superman dead. He is dead. Um, in this particular version, Superman's death has sort of opened the door to grand extraterrestrial threats. There's a sense that Superman was sort of like a guardian. People, aliens from other worlds were not likely to mess with with the Earth because Superman was going to be there and protect everything. Superman's gone now, and so Steppenwolf and his his overlord, Darkseid, uh, they decide to use this opportunity to attack Earth for apparently the second time in 5,000 years. Um, Batman understands that this could be a problem, and so he and Wonder Woman start gathering together some super-powered individuals to help defend Earth. No one can be Superman, Batman understands, but he wants to, to get sort of a super team together to to help defend it. And some of his potential partners in this new Justice League are um, more excited to join than others. And some just flat refuse. Would that be a fair summation? Oh, pretty close. And then we've got to get to the, to the, the infinity stones of this particular movie, right? The weird mother mother cubes. So the mother cubes, they're a weird thing. <laughs> I just they're they're a strange they are just the infinity stones. And for some reason, these three mother cubes, which have a tremendous amount of power that Steppenwolf and Darkseid can use to conquer the rest of the universe, they found their way to Earth. And they've been held by three different races, classes of people. Humans yeah. have one. Um, the Amazons hold another, and the Atlanteans have a third. And so Steppenwolf's assignment is essentially to reclaim these mother cubes one by one. And at first, it's not much of a problem, despite the best efforts of certain people to stop them. Yeah. So one of the original problems with the Justice League cut as done by Whedon was that there was a whole lot of that context missing. We didn't really know what the mother cubes were, why they were doing what they were doing, that there was any connection to Superman's death, uh, what Steppen, why Steppenwolf cared about the mother cubes, why he was coming after them. Uh, was he, he wasn't connected to anybody else. And, and so like all that stuff you just described is brand new context for Zack Snyder's Justice League, because that was one of the complaints. One of the biggest complaints about Whedon's cut was that there was so little context, basically none, for who Steppenwolf was, why was he doing what he was doing, what was he up to, and why did it matter? And he had no association in that cut with any higher, worse, more evil power. He was was one of the worst villains that you see in any superhero movie because of that lack of context you know you just you just didn't feel and this has sort of been an issue that had plagued the dc superhero movies before you know the i think that that superhero movies are made or broken by their villains and steppenwolf just wasn't a very effective villain in part because it appeared that he didn't have much to do you know he was really mean and he was really angry and he wanted to get these cubes but there wasn't a lot of context, as you say. Yeah. So 
Snyder comes in to add all of that context. And I think that's where a bulk of the new footage comes from. To round that out, I would say the other place where it shows up is to round out the backstories of some of our heroes who we don't haven't seen in their own standalone movies, as well as a little bit for the ones who did. But you get more backstory on The Flash, Barry Allen, what's going on in his life, as well as Cyborg. Cyborg in particular, because at least The Flash had a TV show. Uh, Cyborg slash Victor Stone, he had nothing. And so the movie really spends a lot of time with him, giving him a backstory as well. In a way, it's it's his movie, Victor Stone's movie. He becomes, I think this is one of the things where, one of the areas where the recut really soars is giving Victor Stone slash Cyborg a reason to be there. Because throughout the entire original Justice League, he's just there. You don't know why. You don't know really much about him. You know he's sort of an angsty teen whose dad made him into what he is, quite literally. But you lose so much context. And in this particular version, Cyborg has a lot to do with these mother cubes and he has a lot to do with shutting them down or, or getting, you know, turning them sort of against Steppenwolf. So uh, in that way, I think that the movie made so much more sense. That was the, probably the number one thing that I appreciated about the new cut uh, above anything else was, was Vixter Stone. And what's interesting is that you're absolutely right. It made the movie make a whole lot more sense. Also, I thought it was utterly boring. It, I, I didn't think it was done very well. It was a whole lot of show and tell instead of, you know, connecting with you emotionally. It was like, here, let us... It, it was like if you talk about storytelling being, hey, you know, walk the audience through two plus two and let them come to four. It was like two plus two equals four. And have we also told you that if you do one <laughs> plus one plus one plus one, you get four. And also if you do three plus one, you get four. It was, hey, let us tell you all the things you should be feeling because we'll just put it all out there. It, it didn't feel organic to me. It just felt like, hey, let's give them context. It didn't feel – it felt very try hard. Yeah. to me. And so all of that extra context made the f- plot make more sense, but really weighed down the overall pacing and emotional resonance of the movie, which isn't saying much because it didn't have much, it didn't really have much emotional resonance in the first place. But I found myself really just very underwhelmed with all the extra baggage that came with the context. Yeah, I probably appreciated the character development maybe a little more than you did because I really, at least it gave me some satisfying characters, right? I I really did like like to know more about these people. And I thought that, that, that Barry Allen slash The Flash... He was always one of the one of the bright spots of the original Justice League, and it, that sort of augmented here because he's really the only thing that lightens up this movie. At the same time, man, this four-hour movie felt like it. It felt four hours long. I found myself, and, and granted, I was reviewing the movie, right? So I'm at my desk. I'm watching it on a computer screen, taking my notes. So it's not exactly the best environment to watch a movie like this. But at the same time, I really, really, really wanted it to be shorter. 
You know, I, I think that, that Justice League cut out way too much. The original Justice League cut out way too much. This one just felt weighty and heavy and overburdened. It felt like one of those trucks maybe that you see in Nebraska that has about half a ton more hay than it really should be carrying. Yeah, it's it's one that you're like, man, I think this context could have been boiled down into about a quarter of the time. And, you know, we just have a two and a half hour movie that's more creative with the ways it sets up this context. This just felt like Snyder got this green light to release his cut and then just really started to indulge. Yes. And and, and it came out in other ways other than just Victor's uh, Victor Stone's backstory segment. I actually liked the little bit with the flash where we got to see the slow motion scene with him rescuing the girl. Like that was, I appreciated that. And I thought timing wise, that was pretty good. It, you know, it took about five minutes and it gave us this backstory, a little bit of fun, introduced us to the character, gave us a context with his dad. Boom. Here he is. I thought they could have done the same with Victor Stone, probably with a little bit more creative and disciplined editing, but it felt like, oh, let's just include it all because I can. And it's going on HBO Max and people can watch it in parts if they want. Who cares? And it doesn't all work. And I think some something that you know we'll talk about, as we, especially as we get into the movies we'd recut, sometimes being a really good storyteller is knowing when you don't need something. And it's not just knowing when you do need something. Yeah. I, I think, honestly... I'm not sure if Zack Snyder is that good of a filmmaker. I mean, mm. I think that he has a lot of stylistic flair. And I know that there's a lot of people who really enjoy his movies, right? I mean, the 300 was sort of a sensation. Um, he has a lot of defenders in the DC universe as far as what he's done with it. I just don't get it, you know? Right. And I, I think that, that when you say that this movie feels indulgent, it feels indulgent. The, the, it, it took maybe 20 minutes or a half an hour for me to see the first moment where I thought, this is ridiculous. Why is this even in here? And that's when Aquaman, I think, is going down under the ocean. And yeah. then all of a sudden they have like a four minute song, this woman doing this weird funeral dirge type of thing that it, it didn't make any sense. It really yeah. didn't make any sense within the context at all. In, in a foreign language, no subtitles. No subtitles. And he's just going in, all, like all we know is that he's just going back into the sea. He's constantly coming in and out of the sea the whole movie. But all of a sudden it's this farewell to, yeah, funeral sounding dirge. That went on forever. I checked my watch three times during that stupid song. It I just, was long. Yeah, it, it really did feel indulgent. There were places where... um had he had a little more oversight, surely somebody, and this is where, you know, you always talk about films that are really great. They need to have an individual, you know, vision. But at the same time, I think every, like, like I would say, every writer needs an editor. Yeah. Every filmmaker needs an editor too, where they say they buy into the filmmaker's vision, but they say, you know what? This you don't need. And there were lots and lots of places where you didn't just didn't need some stuff. 
Yeah, he would linger way too long in scenes that didn't need it. And, you know, because he wanted to have some more cinematic music or look at this landscape or look at this scene. Look how I've posed the actor. It felt to me, I think, uh, back when they made Jurassic World with Chris Pratt, where they were force feeding us all these epic looking scenes to try to convince us that it was an epic movie when the, you know, maybe when the emotions weren't hitting or whatever, it's like, well, wait, we'll have Chris Pratt step in dramatically and remove his glasses and say, by Jove, this is a problem. And it was like Snyder just stuffed this movie full of those moments. Like almost like he couldn't decide which one would be the best place, which places would be the best to insert them. And then in this director's cut was, I'll just leave them all in. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you're just like, I've already seen the epic pose and the dramatic swell of the music and just move along the story already. Move along the story already. The other thing that I thought was an inclusion that really didn't need to be there, and this is going to sound like me as the plugged in reviewer, I know, but it was an R-rated cut and it really didn't need to be that. Um, there were a few F words here and there, just enough almost to get that R rated cut. And the blood was a little bit more pronounced here and there. It seemed, it seemed really salacious. It seemed really unnecessary, particularly when you're talking about these, these heroes that we got to remember, they, they started out as, as entertainment for kids and right. they were Pace code era. As, yeah they were meant to be aspirational characters i totally get that deadpool lives in an r-rated world right i thought logan was a brilliant movie despite its r rating but i just don't think that these characters superman batman wonder woman i don't think that they live in an r-rated world and it was a little bit disappointing to see them go there well, and I would say maybe even less so than – than because uh, I think the argument can be made that Batman does live in an R-rated world. I mean I think we saw that possibility with like The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight easily could have been an R-rated movie if not for Christopher Nolan's really sharp editing. Right. You know, I'm, I imagine he had some pretty smart people around him helping to make those types of smart cuts to keep it just – below that line because honestly the dark knight still felt darker and more r-rated to me than the justice league did i think that's part of what feels weird is it feels like he's forcing this film that's not an r-rated film to be an r-rated film so that when there is a curse word when there is blood it's oh where did that come from because the rest of this is silly sci-fi fantasy uh superheroes and it was like, oh, no, let me just film in really dark hues of blue and gray. And, oh, it's gritty, guys. Believe me. Again, it feels like with Snyder, it feels like the more we see his films, the more it's like, oh, he's technically competent in that he can piece together action sequences and he gets how this is all made. But he doesn't really understand the heart of the matter. And 300 might have just been one in a million for him. Yeah. And I don't think he understands the characters. Another thing right. that bothered me was, again, you see super, you see, you see Batman firing off these guns. Batman does not use guns. What's wrong with this? This is not right. Um, Superman in his 
black suit at the end. I thought that that was, I, I don't remember if that was part of the original Justice League. It was or not. They, uh, they changed that for the Snyder's cut. I don't get why that was, that was there. Um, and, and I think connected with that was if you watch to the very end, a good 20 minutes of the film's runtime is this huge post-apocalyptic scene, like this vision from the future. It's, it's presented as a dream, a, a dream of, of Bruce Wayne. Um, but it, it shows us a world where it seems as though Superman is now the enemy because of some deep, dark tragedies that he's experienced. And he blames Batman for them all. And I know that in the comics, you know, Batman and Superman, they seem to go toe-to-toe with each other every other year, right? But at the same time, that that whole cutscene felt so bleak and so grim. And it really, as a fan of these superheroes, is... is a person who who looks to to superheroes both as a source of fun and entertainment but also a little bit of aspiration that gloomy end really left a sour taste in my mouth you know i think i would have liked zack snyder's justice league so 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 much better had it not been for the final 20 minutes i don't think it would have saved it for me i think but your point still stands like the way it bothered me was that we had it didn't add anything new to that premonition that Batman had had that we hadn't already seen in Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice because it was build it was like ostensibly building upon the same premonition that Batman has in that film right, right. but it doesn't advance or give us extra information really outside of like one line as to why Superman has turned and gone bad. And so it really just feels like it got, it was something clipped from the previous film and instead of building on what we saw in the previous film, it was an excuse for them to show a dialogue between uh, Affleck's Batman and Jared Leto's Joker really. That's really what it felt like because the only extra context it gave us was, well, he's really upset about what happened to Lois. Yeah. Yeah. And that turned him and, oh, okay. Like ostensibly the black suit I think is supposed to foreshadow that this version of Superman has lost something and that's supposed to lead to this bleak, you know, potentially lead to this bleaker future, but they still don't end up connecting those dots in yeah. a meaningful way. You just have to guess that. Oh, I guess that's why they did that, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I thought that the dialogue between Batman and the Joker, I mean, I really did not care to see Jared Leto's Joker ever again, first of all. But it also felt really, it felt wooden, it felt heavy, it felt just weird. It just it just left me with a slimy taste in my mouth. And yeah, I I... When you it made no sense to this film, no, it made no sense to the film. That that's absolutely right. Back to your original point, it made no sense for this film. And when you're spending four hours dedicated to this movie, I think you deserve to have. When it's a superhero movie, you're you deserve to turn it off and be smiling, not fearful of the future. Right? I mean. <laughs> This was not, <laughs> you know, back to Christopher Nolan's Batman. Sometimes you you hear about 
it's he's not the hero that we would love. He's the hero that we deserve or whatnot. This is not this is not the superhero movie that we either wanted or deserved in as we come out of COVID. We feel stressed <laughs> enough and depressed enough already. We needed a little bit of uplift. And this movie, it almost gave us, for all its flaws, and it has many, many, many flaws, but it did give us a moment of uplift. It felt like the, the end of the movie was reasonably satisfying to me. And then it, it, this coda brings you down. It feels like it feels like COVID all over again. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're hopeful. You're like, yeah, 2019 is done. 2020 is going to be great. And then that ending is 2020. <laughs> like, no, that is not what I asked for. <laughs> That's exactly right. At the end of 2019. Even with that, let's say we're okay with the darkness of it on its merits because maybe it's well done. To me, the problem is that it made me want to see the film that would give that context. Yeah. Like if I'm going to go into that dark hole with Batman, again, this was my critique with Batman v Superman, was that they gave us this glimpse of this really drained, exhausted, you know, fed up Batman. And I was like, I want to learn how he got here. And this scene with Joker at the end of Justice League gave us another glimpse of perhaps what made him this bitter, jaded, washed up version of Batman. And I thought, boy, if we had that context of the story he's telling and we saw the film of what brought Batman to this point with Joker, with himself, with Alfred, with Gotham, that could be pretty interesting to explore. And then I would know what I'm getting into to kind of, to your point, I'm not getting into a super fun fantasy world of Batman. I'm getting into this dark, gritty, washed up old fat fleck Batman. Yeah. Not to body shame. He's a stout guy. (laughs) So it just made me think I would just rather you leave that out of justice league and just do an awesome gritty Batman movie. If that's where you want to go but you just keep dropping in all these hints that don't make sense to the film at hand and don't, you know, actually give us any context. I had the exact opposite reaction. (laughs) That movie. Unsurprising. Is a movie that I would never, ever want to see. People literally pay me to see movies. I might have to pay someone else more money. So I wouldn't have to see that movie. It would just, it would feel just so it would feel not only just so personally um despairing it would feel what we saw there just doesn't feel germane to the characters that i know now as you say to your point we don't know how they got to this point but i don't know if i want to know you know, there, there are times when movies go on. The Exorcist. The Exorcist was a really, really good movie that someday I will make you watch. Never, but keep going. The prequels were absolutely terrible, and most people have expunged them from sort of the Exorcist canon, right? Because they are just so, so abysmal. And I think that I have the same feeling when I see those flash forwards to this to this post-apocalyptic world i think that it feels it feels not only really dispiriting but it feels out of sync with what we have known about these characters for low these many decades so all of those things combined with 
here's the other problem for me that all the extra context they added ended up adding new plot holes and inconsistencies into the story in addition to slowing down the pace. For example, they made a whole big deal with all this extra context about how as Steppenwolf and his minions are searching for the mother cubes, how they can smell it on people that have been close to it, which is a weird thing to say you can smell a cube, but okay, I'll accept that. Let's, I, I'm, a, I'm a happy nerd. I'll accept that. A bullion cube. A bullion cube. A bullion cube. And yet they can't, smell it on the guy literally created out of it you know they and they can't they can only smell it sometimes but not other times and people that work with it every single day like there's all these plot holes where they can smell it now but they can't smell it then and you know they're smelling it across the world but they can't smell it in the person right in front of them you know things like that that just end up making zero sense but just provide extra context for them to continue to lengthen the running time of them smelling out the mother cubes. I, I totally agree. I mean, and it's not that we ask superhero movies to make complete sense all the time. Right. Again, I'll accept that they can smell a cube, (laughs) but, but you have to be at least semi consistent with the universe that you're creating. And when you're not, then it, it, it makes everything all the more glaring. Right. And, and the m- previous mistakes make it much more easier to pick on a movie for those inconsistencies. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that he cleared up some inconsistencies that, that were in the original Justice League. It felt like a more cohesive movie, but more cohesive does not make it cohesive. Yeah. You know, and, and it still has some definite problems. So that all for me is a reason why I'm shocked to be reading reviews of people gushing over this film and thinking that it's completely redeemed this movie. And I just think, what universe are you in? I mean, people are giving this eight, nine. I mean, it's in the IMDb top 250 already based on user reviews. So Paul, like I was curious to see if we had a different take on it. I, I just can't see how all the additions for me with, uh, brought enough new problems to yeah. completely equal out any problems that they solved and still make this a very mediocre movie. Yeah. I mean, for a superhero movie, I think it is mediocre. I mean, I'm, I would be, I, I think that the people who are raving about it, I think many of them are going to be embarrassed about it in five to 10 years. I really mm. do. Because yeah. I think that we do have, we get caught up in some of these storylines and and the whole idea of the Snyder cut had developed such momentum over the last two years, even though Joss Whedon just five years ago was considered a genius for what he did with Avengers. So you have this momentum that I think has, has hidden the movie's flaws from some of the people who are rating it. I Again, I think the movie is more cohesive. I think there were aspects of it that I definitely enjoyed more than Joss Whedon's version. But man, it still has huge, huge problems. Huge problems. Singing. Batman holding guns. Four hours of unnecessary runtime. Dispiriting end. I think that I think that there are just some big problems that people are going to realize as time goes on. This is not a movie that is going to wear well. Yeah, I I think it's something of a 
Emperor's New Clothes moment where people pushed so long to get the Snyder's cut and were so convinced that the darker Snyder's cut was going to be it and the Justice League movie that they deserved that I think to see it and it not be that, I just think their brains had to convince them, no, this was awesome. Yeah. This is exactly what you belly egged about for the last three and a half years. You love it. And it, yeah, so. it drives me a little bit crazy in some ways when you think about how the the problems and everybody admits that the problems that 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 we had, well, there were a lot of problems with the original DC movies, but but one of the big ones is that they were just so dark and grim. They took the wrong lessons from Christopher Nolan's brilliant Batman trilogy and decided that everything needed to be very dark literally and figuratively and depressing and and yeah we have a darker more depressing justice league but i don't think that's necessarily an improvement no and they didn't they didn't still to do dark and depressing well you have to find a way to connect either the plot and the characters usually both into something into the psyche of the user and that's something nolan did well that's what grounds his world and that's not something Snyder does well. He's not connecting into your head. I mean, frankly, I watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the first episode of that. We'll talk about the full season later on and do a deep dive into that. But no spoilers on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But just the first episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier did such a good job of using nuanced filmmaking, dialogue, you know, fr- shot framing to draw you into some complex emotions from the main characters in 40 minutes that Snyder couldn't do in four hours. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. So there you have it. Zack Snyder's justice league. It's on HBO max. You're hearing it from me and we'll see if Paul concurs when I say it, not worth the cost of a one month subscription. I would say I would agree with that. I would totally agree with that, but, as I would say, HBO Max has a lot more stuff than Justice League. Yeah, Paul's got more reasons that you might want to check out HBO Max, but it's safe to say that Zack Snyder's Justice League is not one of those. <laughs> it is worth, if it ever comes out you know, on another streaming service or if it comes out on Redbox for some reason, you might want to check it out for $1.99. I, I mean, not that's the problem though. Like from a stream, if you're going to get it uh, from a, a red box or from, you know, Amazon for a one night stream kind of thing uh, with a four hour movie, I don't think you're, you're it's tough to watch in one sitting. Oh. I, it felt like I was punishing myself watching it through it. Brutal. Really bad. So well, you're not- basically renting two movies. <laughs> it just felt long. It just felt long and superhero movies should not feel long. No. So with that in mind, Paul and I have decided to take our collective intellects and apply them to the world and universe of Hollywood to say, Hollywood, you probably goofed up on this recut, but we've got a couple ideas for you since you're willing. (laughs) That means it's time for Rank Geeks. Here we are in Rank Geeks, the place where two smelly nerds like to lay our definitive opinions out and tell you that they are the official, unreversible, written in stone, 
Law of the land, opinions, not opinions, rules. <laughs> when it comes to nerdery and geekery, it's rank geeks. Paul, that was not one of my better explanations. <laughs> you had such a nice segue, and then... And then blew it. Just blew it. But like you know that. that shows what happens when you recut something good. I should have stuck... With my smelly nerd stuff, you know, that bit, that bit slays. Yeah. Yes, it really does. So there's a lot of controversy over the recutting process. We previewed that before, but it's not always bad. Some recuts are received well, even over time. Blade Runner being about the only one that I can think of (laughs) off the top of my head. The reality is this doesn't happen a lot, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that that I, I director's cuts, different cuts, it always feels weird to me. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes it works. I uh, I thought it was interesting, actually, when Peter Jackson released his extended version of, of all the Lord of the Rings movies. Right. And he said, I don't want to call them director's cuts because that sort of implies that we would have done something different with the with the theatrical releases. And he released the movies that he wanted to release. Um, those those new extended versions had some cool things that were a part of that. But when you talk about original movies, director cuts, there's always this implication that somebody screwed up somewhere. And then they leave it up to, to us viewers to decide who that was. And I think we're actually going to be seeing more and more of these director's cuts in this very... Um, connected entertainment environment that we live in. Fans have more say than ever over what is created. And I think that those fans are going to sometimes demand director's cuts if it doesn't fit their version of what they think a movie should be. Right. And you think about for the right price, it's it's a potentially lucrative decision for these studios, depending on how much it costs them to recut. Hopefully, I think for most studios, they're hoping it's not going to cost them $70 million. <laughs> uh, But the streaming, you know, when they have the abilities with the streaming services, different ways to package things to, you know, there's potentially more flexibility around how they get around that. They don't necessarily have to rely on DVD sales or Blu-ray sales the way they might have previously. Maybe they just need to cut a deal with a Netflix or Amazon or, and somebody else will fund it and they'll just be another, you know, be able to rake in some extra cash while, you know, giving Amazon or Netflix or maybe their own streaming services, more hooks to get users in the door. Yep. Yep. It's, it is an interesting time in which we live. I, I tend to, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about it. You know, I really do. I just don't know what to think about it. But there, as you say at the very top, there are definitely some movies that could be improved with a little better editing. Yep. So for me, how about I start with number five on my list because I'm selfish that way. <laughs> also because there's the cleanest segue. Number five on my list, this is going to feel like cheating, but I just had to say it. Number five on my list is... Zack Snyder's Justice League. I think in about four years, we're going to release a cut called Jake Roberson's Snyder's Justice League as screenplayed by Joss Whedon. <laughs> and we're going to restore some more of the heart to it that and humor to it that we got with the flash that was lost in this Zack Snyder's cut. 
We're going to chop about an hour and a half of the extra Snyder bloat, including Paul. We're going to cut that end Leto Joker scene right out of the film. It's gone. You got my money. So I, I, I thought I might be able to get you back on board with that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to, we're going to cut the song, the, the song to Aquaman. We're going to chop that down to about 15 seconds and provide subtitles so that people can know that it's this epic farewell to a warrior, <laughs> like sending a warrior off into battle song, you know, not just some random song that three random poor people are singing yeah. for unknown reasons. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Superman's suit blue again. We're going to make Superman's suit blue and red again. Good. Because it's not, it doesn't make sense to have it be black when we're chopping off that end sequence where Batman turns. Like we're just ignoring that, 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 that future has been averted by what happened, right? We're going to, we're going to cut that out. Um, And we're going to, the other thing we're going to do is we're going to take the Victor Stone storyline. We're going to condense that down to be about the same length as the Barry Allen storyline because that fits much better with the flow of the story. And we're going to knock it off with all these like posing the superheroes scenes. We don't need that. They're already superheroes. We don't need to pose them and have them slow motion fist bumping each other. That's dumb. Let's try hard stuff. Two and a half hours. People are going to be able to watch it in one sitting. The Jake Roberson Snyder's justice league as screenplayed by Joss Whedon coming to a theater near you in late 2024. Or an HBO Max streaming service, possibly. So now I know why you decided you wanted to go first this time. Hmm. First time in our entire podcast history, as I recall. (laughs) Because you wanted to steal my number five. Oh, that was your number five? Yes. Zack Snyder's Justice League. Nice. Cut that down. I wouldn't go two and a half, but maybe 245, right? You still need to have that extra, extra stuff. But you know what? Since you've already covered Justice League, I'm going to go, I'm going to zig, and I'm going to go with yet another DC property. Hmm. Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad is notoriously one of the worst cut movies in cinematic history. And you can tell that from watching trailer number one of Suicide Mm. Squad compared to trailer number two. This was when this was when uh, Snyder's version of of DC was getting a lot of flack for being way, way, way too dark. So they changed um, halfway through as they were doing some post editing stuff on, on Suicide Squad, turning it from a really dark movie into a really light movie. And the issue that it created was making Suicide Squad a much more incoherent movie and tonally inconsistent now granted if i had my druthers i would probably just make a whole new version of suicide squad Mm. but i do think that that probably it would be best served by by following one vision over another even if it's a little bit darker that was an unspoken rule for my list was that there are some films that i just thought were unsalvageable and it's not really a recut that's needed it's just, it needs to be completely retconned and redone. Just a new film. And Suicide Squad would be right about there. Though it's possible that it was salvageable at some point. It really, the final product was not. Yeah. You're really going to hate my number four pick. I'll tell you that. Oh, good. 
Number four for me uh, is reaching back all the way to 2004, a movie directed by none other than Nick Cassavetes. Are you familiar with Nick's work? Uh, probably not. Uh, you actually, you, uh, you would have seen him in the movie face off back in the 1990s, but I digress. That's not the film I'm talking about. No, he directed in 2004, a film that was released then called the notebook. Oh my goodness. The notebook is a Nicholas Sparks film, right? You know, sappy, saccharine. Have Have you seen that 40 or 50 times, Jake? I have seen it all of one time. And I thought this the very first time I saw The Notebook, back in the mid 2000 aughts, right? I thought halfway through the film, spoiler alerts for The Notebook, hold for applause. I, I knew exactly how the second part of the film should go and they blew it. And that's why I think it needs to be recut because the first part is great. You know, boy meets girl. They don't like each other. There's lots of back and forth. They kind of start to fall for each other. Right before things can get serious, the boy gets sent off to war. All right. Then, of course, the girl doesn't, the girl's parents don't like the boy. Classic story, right? We all know where this is going. Nicholas Sparks took it exactly where everybody knew it was going. Boring. Right. The The mom stops passing the boy's letters back. The girl thinks he's left and gone and doesn't want to see her. She marries. She gets forced into a marriage. He comes back grizzled, hardened PTSD, and it turns into this sappy, dramatic love story again. Ugh, blah. No. <laughs> what happens, what needs to be happening in the recut is he comes back. He's PTSD, grizzled and scarred. He realizes, he finds out that all of his letters have been kept from his girl by her parents and she's married this guy on false pretenses. And all of, a t- all of a sudden, now we're in this thriller slasher flick. And everybody, but all the trailers were cut to look like a romance comedy, right? <laughs> romance dramedy. And now all of a sudden, all the viewers are completely stunned. Nobody saw it coming. It's a horror thriller slasher. And the Roberson cut of the notebook wins all the Academy Awards. So I, I have to take issue with this. Because as you were talking about the Suicide Squad, making it, you know, starting afresh, this feels a little like you're starting afresh. I don't see a lot of necessary We only have to reshoot the last third of the film. Oh my goodness. That's more than editing. That's The first two thirds are all there. The first two thirds are all there. Oh my goodness. That's just insane. Like the first two thirds are perfect for my my concept. It set the story set up perfectly. I don't want to change any of that a bit. I just want to change that last third. Okay, so so if I was going to quote unquote edit the notebook, <laughs> I would recut. I would film a a few extra scenes where the guy is wearing a cape and a cowl, and the girl becomes a ninja. That yeah. sounds like a much better movie. You no, know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the flow. Oh. Storyline wise, mine still fits. Oh. It still fits because what he does in the notebook, as it is, is he just becomes like a drunk, angry person, and they eventually fall in love. In this, I'm turning from a drunk, angry person to a murderous, angry person. It's a <laughs> tiny little, yeah, tiny it's, little change. It's completely the same movie. I don't know why I didn't see that before. 
Yeah, you're you're so wrong. <laughs> Number four for me. Okay. Manos, hands of fate. Oh, interesting. Yes, this. Why is would you? I thought you loved Manos for how bad it was. Oh, it was, but but you know, I I wouldn't change it. But you can tell just when you watch this movie, which is considered to be one of the worst movies ever made, right? Um, one of the issues that that it has as one of the worst movies ever made. It's not a change that I would personally make, but if you wanted to make it better, you could improve the editing. So one of the things about Manos is that it it has some terrible cuts, first of all. I mean, it just has, has, you know, if we think that Zack Snyder's four-minute song is ridiculous, which it is, almost as ridiculous as just watching some of these characters spend 45 seconds walking across a parking lot for no apparent reason. It is also the only movie that I'm aware of where on the final version you can actually see tape where they actually edited pieces of the film together. You can actually see the tape if you look closely enough. So I do think the Manos Hands of Fate could probably stand a little editing, even if it edits, it edits out a little bit of its charm. But I think with why I would say that's different between that and the notebook is that even if you fix up the editing, the acting's terrible, the story doesn't make any sense. Like the editing makes all of that worse, but none of that is fixed by just changing the editing and you've lost the charm and heart of the film. That was a dude basically, right, if I'm remembering this right, making a bet that anybody can make a movie and failing spectacularly. <laughs> Yes, that is true. That is true. But if you want to make a, a, a bad movie better, that's how to do it. If you but, by making it's a bad, still a bad movie, movie. Like that better, it's still a bad movie. I, I agree with your point. It's still it is still not going to save the movie. But right. and now you just ruined the charm. It's like going back and editing. You know, it's like well, now I tried to make a bad movie good, and now it's less bad, which makes it less good. <laughs> But now we're getting back into our argument about killer clowns from outer space, right? Yeah. yeah. Which I am still right about. But I will grant you I will grant you Manos Hands of Fate. So All right. number four. Number three for me from nineteen sixty eight. This could have been a great film if they would have let me cut it. That's why I am commissioning the Roberson Jake Roberson's two thousand one A Space Odyssey. Oh, see, I knew it was going to come up in this conversation. I knew it was going to come up. Because, Paul, as we talked about, there are elements in this film that are good and interesting. And yet they choose to have monkeys stroking black obelisks, and they choose to have six to ten minutes of blank black screen and nonsensical music, No, not even a voiceover to dignify our time. They have 15 minutes of one dude's face, just colors flashing on it. Like I was supposed to know before I watched the film that this movie must be watched after smoking LSD. <laughs> you tell me that before the film, not at the end of the movie. And yet, Paul, there's so many redeemable elements in 2001 A Space Odyssey. That is my olive branch to yeah. you. There's so much good in the film. I like its message about mankind and humanity and our destructive nature and robots and there's so much interesting so that could happen if i cut out about an hour of the film a tight hour and a half of film kubrick kubrick's cut garbage jake roberson's cut 
True classic. True yeah. classic. It it really speaks to your hubris. Yes. Thank I will you. define that for you after the show. <laughs> no, I know what it means, and thank you still. <laughs> I think it it really does speak to something in you where you would say, you know what? This this science fiction classic that has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, that is widely considered to be the greatest, greatest science fiction movie by far of all time. You know what? I could really improve it. I could go in, take my scissors, and cut some of the things that make it absolutely great and and hack it out. And all of a sudden you have it's it's a little like the Manos Hands of Fate argument, only in reverse. You're taking a classic and making it slightly more Jake Roberson friendly, but a much worse movie. See, I'm not saying I need to make the film. I'm just saying I need to help them with the editing. <laughs> like, I'm not saying I can make the whole movie. I, I'm under no illusion there. But I do think I could be a heck of an editor for Kubrick on this one. Oh, my goodness. Also, I just need to let the audience know, just so they know how much, how many grains of salt they need to take with your opinion – it is not 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. All right, you're off by 8%. 92%. A, it's 92%. And it just shows you how many people are in the emperor's pocket yeah. thinking that naked man has clothes. Yeah, I think the same people who think that 2001 A Space Odyssey is bad are the same people who think that Zack Snyder's Justice League is good. Well, that's not true because I think Jack, Zack Snyder's Justice League is bad. Yeah, with with your exception. Number three. Number, Number three. three, Catwoman. Oh, I never saw Catwoman just at all. Well, and here's my confession. Neither have I. Oh. But here's the thing. I did see of this 2004 classic. Ah, same year as The Notebook. All right, I'm tracking. <laughs> Must have been a bad year for editors. You know, it, it's amazing how many DC movies come up in this conversation, right? So, so this movie is considered, you know, one of the worst movies. It, it might be the worst movie of 2004. And yes, I did not see it. But I did watch what has now become the infamous basketball scene mm. where Halle Berry plays one-on-one -on -one basketball with her love interest while a bunch of kids watch. It is the most ridiculous scene and most poorly edited scene that I have ever witnessed in my life. It, uh, it, there is actually one four-second period has ten different cuts, just to make Halle Berry look like a really like she knows what she's doing. Player. It was. It is so frenetic, honestly, that just watching the the whole sequence, which you can find on YouTube, is a minute forty-four seconds long it almost made me seasick. There had to have been maybe 200 cuts within that within that less than two-minute version. It was insane. And yeah, I think that, that just editing that one scene might improve the rest of what I imagine Catwoman looks like immeasurably. Well, I mean, you have a Oscar nominated at least. She, has she won an Oscar? At least Oscar nominated. Oh, How yeah, she won an Oscar. You know, how do you how do you make such a trash film with an Oscar actress? Yeah. I mean, ask George Lucas, he did it with Natalie Portman, but I mean <laughs> you know what? We need to get 
What, look, I'm looking up the director for Catwoman, and it just is one word, Pitoff. P-I-T-O-F. Pitoff. It, it is really, and the whole movie is is supposedly, I, again, I haven't seen it, but the whole movie is supposedly just as poorly edited. It it actually suffers from too much editing. While, while Manos Hands of Fate has somebody walking across a parking lot for a minute, this one would feature that same walk across the parking lot set to a big old cool 2004 beat they would have like 177 cuts that they would need to incorporate in that same little walk across the parking lot and that's not good editing so i think that that probably a steadier hand on the scissors could have done catwoman a good service yeah this is a, a fascinating one and i'm trying to figure out how this dude got to direct a film and I cannot make heads or tails of it. He's a French guy who's known for photography and editing like commercials and doing some digital imaging. And he only had one film to his credit before Catwoman. And it was this inter, you know, crazy sounding French film, nothing big, nothing, yeah. you know, amazing. And yet he got to direct Catwoman out of nowhere. Yeah. Like who owed who a favor at that point? You know? Exactly. Exactly. But Jake and anybody else who's listening, I would definitely suggest you check out the basketball scene on YouTube. It is quite the hoot. That sounds worth it to me. Just for that. All right. For me, very appropriate for 2020, 2021. Number two on my list is I Am Legend. Oh, wow. That's a surprise. Yeah. I Am Legend, you know, of course, is about Will Smith doing a castaway where he has a dog and some vampires instead of a volleyball and an ocean on a deserted island, right? It's the same thing. Just like That's you the know. comparison I would make. <laughs> uh, you know, a plague has killed most of humanity or turned them into vampires. It's a bit nebulous there, right? And Will Smith is fending for his life. Uh, thinking he's kind of the last man on earth and, you know, what happens from there. Of course, controversial was the ending. And I believe that they have talked about the fact that they did shoot a different ending. Uh, they just didn't release it with that ending. And this, you know, is based on a book that has some very, you know, philosophical, heady source material. And the ending that they ended up using just was kind of too feel good and oh everything's fine and there's really like what were we supposed to learn and what kind of message is there eh, it's kind of milk toast but the rest of the film had a lot of promise you know you've got will smith talented guy surviving in a post-apocalyptic uh landscape with these weird vampire creatures and you know discovering his own humanity and possibly the humanity left and the remnants of humanity there's a lot of interesting themes and stuff done that just seemed to be sort of wasted in yeah. I Am Legend rather than explored. I do have to say, I really enjoyed I Am Legend when I watched it, and I think it it stands pretty well as a movie. It's okay. Yeah, for, you know, it's not terrible. I And I, I appreciated the ending even. Um, but I do have to say, this is a movie that I would say could stand for a whole remake in some mm -hmm. ways because the original book... Um, which was by this guy named Richard Matheson. Mm -hmm. It sounds really interesting. And and it's been made into a movie a couple of times. And But I Am Legend seems to have scrapped what was really the power, the power of the original narrative, where you have this guy who's who's fighting these vampires, 
And he realizes that as time goes on, he was the bad guy. Mm-hmm. He was the destructor of this new civilization that was rising from the ashes. And and I think that that, that is a really interesting movie to me. Right. And that just gets lost in the version that we get. It seems more sanitized for the public rather than, you know, really challenging us. Yeah. Yeah. So number two for me, I'm just going to throw a broad net over this thing and say any Transformer movie ever. Oh, anyone. Yeah. Those, there's something about them. And if I had to pick one, if you forced me to pick one, I would say Dark of the Moon. Mm. Uh, I remember reviewing that and watching the fight scenes, which were, you know, very frenetic and exciting and CGI spectacular things with, with hits and explosions and all sorts of things. But I could never really tell who was who the transformers mm. all blended in together. The, the, the cuts, the whole thing just felt muddy and confusing. And you knew there was a whole bunch of action, but because it was so disconnected from any sort of context, the, the action actually felt a little bit boring. It just yeah. felt like a big old stream of, of action sequences where, Robots that you're not really confused, where you don't really know which side they're on or who's winning or who's losing, they fight against each other. And it just, it just got boring. I think that those fight scenes could have stood a lot more scrutiny in terms of some sort of narrative behind them. And I think that if there was some sort of narrative behind them, the Transformers movies, especially Dark of the Moon, might have been more watchable than they were you know they were hard movies for me to to sit through to be honest with you yeah they absolutely end up being pretty much just for the kids because there is just so much metal carnage that it does become difficult for aging eyes to be able to make out which (laughs) nuances and which of which robot are is which like oh i thought oh i thought that one was one of the good guys i guess he's not anymore you know once they would it's like if they stood apart from each other and weren't in the middle of the fight, you could kind of figure it out. But once the fray got going, not only would that have been a nightmare to be doing the CG for, just in terms of going frame by frame, but for those trying to watch it, it could be tough to keep up with and be, uh, which silver gray robot is the bad one? Yeah. And, the one and with I- the testicles? Okay, <laughs> let's cut that guy out. Because that was weird, giving a robot testicles. That was weird. That was another problem that could have cut that out as well. I, uh, I I do think that, and I have wondered whether if I had grown up with transformers and had, you know, played with them, whether it would have been a little more sensical, but these are criticisms. I don't know. I mean, they just, they just blur together. And I don't think it's just for me. I think they blur together for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It could have, it could have stood a little bit more coherency in the fight scenes. Yeah, I think, you know, the first one might have been okay. Uh, but the more they rolled on and kind of became the never-ending story yeah. type where you're on part nine and I have no idea who, and you're introducing new robots and I don't care about any of them anymore. It it just lost because you've seen so many different car robots that, okay, fine, I guess I need to care about this one. I thought the Transformers could have been a fine standalone movie with one film. And okay, I get it. The yellow yeah. car is in the blue car. Those are the good ones. And the black and silver ones are the bad ones. Got it. But 
<laughs> you know, they had to go and make more of them. Yeah, yeah. And they made so much money that they just had to keep, keep cranking. More. They keep cranking. As they were. Number one on my list is a perfect example of something I mentioned earlier, and that is knowing when too much is too much. And it's fascinating, but I think this is a great example of hubris. I do know what that word means. <laughs> uh, because Peter Jackson is the culprit here. And I think the Hobbit trilogy needs a recut. Uh, I have to admit, I was excited about the Hobbit getting turned into more than one film when I, when it was first announced that it would be more than one film. Because I was a little worried about a director trying to crunch the entire Hobbit into one movie. I thought, boy, that would be really tough. But if anybody can do it, it's Peter Jackson. But then they announced they're going to make it more movies. Then it's going to be three movies and it's going to connect into the Lord of the Rings and help bridge the gap. And, and at first, after what we got with the Lord of the Rings, I had a lot of trust in Peter Jackson. I thought if anybody can pull it off, it's Peter and his team, right? Philippa Buyens and others who worked with him. I was like, it's going to be great. Oh, it was not. It ends up being a whole lot of mess. Like beyond just the camera work, which ended up being a problem where he shot it extra frames per second to create this hyper-realistic look that ends up making the CG look even worse next to what's real, to adding all this extra context with this war that didn't end up really delivering on the whole connecting to Lord of the Rings storyline. It kind of only seemed to do so kind of provisionally in the end. And so you end up with him filling a whole lot of screen time with extra battles that are nowhere to be found and aren't really moving the story along or just 20, 30 minute battle scenes, which in the context of Lord of the Rings, where it's moving stuff along, we're seeing characters develop it, we're all this stuff, it works, but he's just inventing it basically in the Hobbit is what it feels like. And so that it doesn't end up feeling like a movie about the Hobbit. It, feels like something that's a convoluted, bloated mess. And so I think it could be trimmed down into two films, but I guess people don't like duologies. That's Duology. a new word I just invented. That's very nice. Duologies. Duologies. You know, I hate to say this, Jake, but I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, that's a that's a fine call. I do think one of the problems that... that that the Hobbit had was its hubris and it's, it's really slavish attention to trying to make it Lord of the Rings too. Right. right. It was never that in the book. It's a very light, fun adventure story. And I think that that's where its charm really lay. And I think that they lost so much of that. I don't know whether even a very strict edit could bring that, that, that fun back to the Hobbit, but I'd like to see them give it a try. I mean, it's worth a shot, right? Trim, a, trim a six hour epic, a seven hour epic down to a nice tight three. I'd, I'd watch that. Three or four. Yeah. 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 Number one for me, Titanic. Titanic. I never even watched the first cut. <laughs> Oh my goodness. You know, everybody should see Titanic at least once. Nah. Right? It won like 27 Oscars. Nah. But I'm good. <laughs> but honestly, 
the thing dragged on so long. It was, I think that the movie is more than three hours, right? And most of it involves this love story between the two lead characters. And uh, I think that that was part of the movie that resonated with so many people and the thing that made it really worth watching. I mean, I know people who have watched this thing 12 times and it's for this relationship between Jack and Rose. Man, when I sat through it, I just wanted the ship to sink already. (laughs) If I had my choice, if I had my druthers, I would keep maybe 15 minutes of the love story cut to the iceberg. That's where it needs to go. Paul wants it to open on the captain of the boat being, hey, (laughs) what is that? (laughs) Cut to dining room. I love you. I love you. Cut back to captain. Holy crap. Is that an iceberg? (laughs) Cube destruction. When the ship started sinking, that's when it got interesting. I'd watch that film. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I I haven't seen Titanic, but I have seen Thumbtanic, and so I felt like that was a pretty good. Pretty, that's all I needed to see. <laughs> Combine Notebook with Titanic in that version. I think that would be an all right version too. Ah, see the thumb version, the the note thumb. Would, the note thumb. That's where I could introduce my murderous plot line. No sweat. No sweat. (laughs) There you have it. That's our list of the top films that need to be recut. What do you think? Do you agree? Disagree? Is there a different candidate that you would have nominated for one of these lists? Who would you boot out? You can catch up with us on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time for the most least important thing. Coming in a scant two hours and 15 minutes shy of Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. Here we are in the most least important thing. As usual, I have kept Paul up way past his bedtime. He (laughs) eats dinner with the early birds, gets that senior discount at 4.30, and right now he is pining for the fjords of his comfortable bed. You know, I do have to say that like Zack Snyder's Justice League, this podcast can can be a little bit self-serving. I mean, we just do what we want to do. Yep. But the thing is, no one's paying us $70 million to do it, right? Well, they didn't pay Snyder $70 million to do it. <laughs> they paid other people $70 million. <laughs> it broke down to about uh, $100 per editor, per you know animator. <laughs> yeah. Mostly on uh, Steppenwolf's armor. Oh, that's so sad. So sad. All right. Do you want me to go first, Jake? Go ahead. That's the most least important thing. <laughs> I realize the segment that we're in, although it has been a long time since. I, I know should. you're tired. You know, you're just, just reminding me your senile brain. I just wanted to help you out. So how much would you pay for a tweet? How much would I pay for a tweet for somebody you know, else to tweet from my account or give me a tweet to from my account or. Like, think of a historic tweet. Would you pay good money to actually own a historic tweet? Oh, uh, no. But I think I see where this might be going. Yeah. So 
CEO, CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, just sold a digital version of the very first tweet in history, which just says, just setting up my Twitter, for $2.9 million. I wouldn't pay that much. $9 million for a tweet that you can actually reproduce anytime you want. It's right. not take a screenshot of it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems crazy, but apparently um, it was sold as a non fungible. Is that right? Non fungible token or NFT, uh, which sort of is, is this certificate of authenticity. It has this digital code that says, this is the original tweet. Um Again, I don't quite understand how that works, and I don't understand for sure why someone would pay $2.9 million for it. Uh, but the the money will be going to Give Directly's Africa's Response, which is a nonprofit organization. So that's nice. Um, but still, $2.9 million for a tweet, that seems really a lot of money for a very least important thing. Right. It it it's this part of this wave of something that's sort of uh we'll see if it's a wave or a bubble with um these crypto tradables yeah. for lack of a better word. Uh we've seen it with like the NBA Top Shot right now where highlight clips are being traded for hundreds of thousands of dollars and prob- possibly millions in the future to own these like you said, there's you know some sort of digital paper trail that shows this is the original file and you own the rights to it. And as a collectible, though, not like you're not collecting royalties on people watching this highlight clip. They can still go to YouTube, but you own the rights to the original file, but they don't do anything for you except the bragging rights. Yeah. So it's it's a weird thing in that collectibles were always right kind of in the eye of the beholder and trading cards were always goofy in that regard. Why is it a big deal that somebody has a square with Tom Brady's picture on it or Mickey Mantle's picture on it? But at least in that context, I couldn't just, you know, easily go and access that card anytime I wanted. Right. Right. But and, now I can go and access these clips or yeah, this tweet anytime I want. Who cares if I own it? I don't know. I'm struggling with it. But people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars now. And, and you're, millions. You're right. Maybe maybe my mind will change over the next 10, 15 years, you know, but because I, I get the Tom Brady comparison, you could make the same argument for, you know, a first edition of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, right? You know, signed by the author or whatnot. Anybody can buy great expectations off the shelf, but there's a certain value that comes with it. But at the same time, because you can actually hold a Tom Brady card, because it seems to have sort of that tactile intrinsic value, it seems like it's in a different category than than just this digital file. I just, it it does seem strange to me. Yeah. Now, maybe if I could get the rights to all the royalties, all right, I'm back in, I'm making some money, but yeah, I'm not there yet. We'll see if this trend takes off. It's an interesting thing. Sticking with the sports motif, my most least important thing is around March Madness, which harkens back to our third episode ever on this podcast where we ranked the best March Madness mascots, right? (laughs) Very fun. It was one of my favorite podcasts we did in the early days. It was super fun. It was. 
Uh, we had a little bit of history made in March Madness in 2021, which feels appropriate, right? Uh, we had a small team become uh, – it won its first NCAA tournament game since 1974. So a drought of nearly 50 years. And it was just the second 15 seed to ever advance to the Sweet 16, which feels appropriately unprecedented for 2021. But congratulations to Oral Roberts University for making history by its first NCAA tournament win in 50 years, making it one of only two teams to ever accomplish that feat in the March Madness. I am a little bit bitter over Oral Roberts University doing as well as they did, quite frankly, because they were one of many reasons why I am currently last in my my uh, my NCAA tourney bracket. Little yeah. Thing. After they won in the first round by beating number two seed Ohio State, they busted. I believe the number was three point four million brackets. Yeah. Uh, alone. Yeah, and, and whoops, and I actually. <laughs> I actually did pick like a, a a small private religious school to go to the Sweet Sixteen. Hmm. It was not Oral Roberts University. I thought you know, Liberty, maybe Liberty. Liberty might. They were ranked a little bit higher, but they let me down. They let you down. Oral Roberts is on its Cinderella run. We'll see if it can make it past the Sweet Sixteen. Maybe you, listener, already know this, but I wanted you to know it was kind of significant that that happened. And uh, shout out, shout out to the. The Oral Roberts of the of the. Do you world. know what their mascot is? I uh, I do, but I'm not thinking. I'm blanking in this exact moment. Are they? No, no. Loyola is the Ramblers, right? Yeah, I think so. Let's see here. I got it live on air. This is good radio. <laughs> Oral Roberts. We'll see how fast my internet is. If it's Golden faster than my Eagles. brain, the Golden, Golden Eagles. Eagles. You would think they would have something more religious. Well, Golden Eagle, Eagles have some religious, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're not. Isaiah what about, 40. What right? about, yeah, yeah. Wings I, like I, eagles. I, and John, you know, he the, the evangelist was, his symbol is the eagle. But you would think they would have like the Leviathans or the Behemoths. There you go. Something yeah. like that. Something like that. Jackals. That's Jackals all we're trying to say. Devouring Queen Jezebel. Yeah, yeah. Some real good fun stuff like that. There you have it. That's it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All. We're going to let Paul get to bed. I'm going to get some dinner and we'll catch you on the. F- oh, wait. I'm Jake. In case you forgot. In case all you listeners are also senile. It's been a long time. It's good to remind people. I, my name is Paul. And our Twitter handles, in case you forgot those too. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now. until next time, we're done. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.